So, uh, John 17, verse 1 is one of the most important verses to understand theologically Jesus' relationship to the Father uh, and what are the greatest values that the Bible has for us. John 17, 1, Jesus says, right, so right the night he was betrayed, he, he instituted the Lord's table. Judas has already gone out. He's about ready to go to the cross and die for you and me. In John 17, 1, at the beginning of Jesus' chapter length prayer, Jesus says, Father, now is the time. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. That the Son may glorify you. Jesus came. Why? Why did Jesus come at Christmas? Why did he go to the cross? He came to glorify the Father. Whether he ate or drank or whatever he did, Jesus did to the glory of God. Right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that someday at the name of Jesus, every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow Every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus came to glorify the Father. But I want you to know something that is just as important in Jesus' value system. He begins his high priestly prayer saying, Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. He ends it by saying, Father, I have made known to them your name and I'm going to keep making known to them who you are so that the love with, with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus begins by saying, I want God to be glorified. And he ends by saying, I want to make sure that my people, as I go to the cross, know how loved they are. I want my people to know how loved they are. And that's why we're studying Psalm 139. That's what Psalm 139 is all about. It is about developing an understanding of God's relationship with us. We all brought to today, to this series, to every day, an idea of how God thinks of us and how God views us and of his relationship with us. We, talk, we ask each other, how's your relationship with God? But do we ever think about what is God's relationship to us? And that's what Psalm 139 is all about. How does God think of us? We want to develop, as we understand this psalm, a better understanding of Christmas. Why did Jesus come? Why, did, why was he in that cradle? Why did he go to the cross? He came to glorify God, but he also came so that you and I would know how loved we are. So if you're not there yet, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 6, we talked about a couple weeks ago. This is all about how God knows me, how he has searched me and known me. He knows when I sit down and when I rise. Verse 4, he knows before word is on my tongue, he knows it. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verses 7 to 12 is all about how God is with me. He's with me wherever I go. Where shall I go? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. Sheol, you're there. If I fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, you're there. Even if darkness comes and covers me, you're with me still there with your light transforming things. And so now we're in verses 13 to 18 which, of course, further develops this theme. It further develops, really, how God is with my life, how involved God is with my life. So God doesn't just know you. He's involved in your life. So I've, got, I've been fortunate to have some friends that, that I still keep in touch with who I knew in kindergarten. Right? So they probably know me better than anyone, any of you, right? But they don't know my life. They don't know where I live. They don't know what my life is like. They don't know where my kids go to school. They don't know McGuanago, Eagle, Palmyra, Waukesha. They don't know my life. 
So we have people who know us really well, who don't always know our life. God is all of those things. He knows you really well, like that childhood friend, but he also knows your life, like a really good friend right this second as well. So the main point of this section is this. God is with us every step of the way. That's what verses 13 to 18 are all about, how God is with us every step of the way. So let's begin in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. First of all, I just want to point out the word for at the beginning. So the function of this section in the course of this whole psalm is is that this is going to be explaining. This is the first uh, explanation kind of word in the psalm. So this is now going to be the explanation for God's close attention to us, described in verses 1 to 6, and why he is so persistently with us, as described in verses 7 to 12. For you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. You see, the, the two, think of the two activities there. Formed my inward parts. You know, you got it like played. You got, uh, think of a baker forming a loaf, right? And that's how he formed your inward parts. And then around that, he knitted. Have you ever seen a, a somebody making bread? Not just in a bread machine, you know, but actually doing the work. It's a very patient thing. I switched over to a no-need recipe because kneading is a pain in the keister, right? So God formed our inward parts, though. It's a patient, slow, intimate, focused thing. Have you ever seen somebody knitting? Knitting a pair of socks, knitting washcloths, whatever. Right, again, it's a patient, slow, incremental, intimate thing. And this is how God made us. I want you to pay attention here to notice two things. God did not create humanity. He created you. It's a little bit of a difference. He didn't just make people. He made you. You know, for some reason, we're always trying to imagine God in depersonalized ways. Right? God is this distant judge. He's the, he's the great clock winder, right? He just got things going, and then who knows what is he doing? He's in a hammock, he's sipping Mai Tais. What is God doing? God is three persons, and we're always trying to depersonalize him. He's three wonderful persons. We're always trying to depersonalize him. That is not how God made us. He didn't just make Adam and Eve and then like, well, see you later. Let me know how that goes. He made you. He made each one of us, formed us and knit us together. And not only did God himself, not only did God make us, God himself made us. I find it really fascinating how throughout uh, like dystopian uh, science fiction, uh, human creation is always like labs, test tubes, vials, you know, uh, tubs, assembly lines. But you know what this says? It says, you, and this is actually, it says, you yourself. There's an emphasis there that we don't see in, in the English translation. You yourself formed my inward parts. You yourself knitted me together in my mother's womb. God himself personally 
handled you. He formed you. He knitted you. That's why, right? This is the explanation for why we are in his hands. As described in verses 7 to 12. Why no matter where we go, we are his. And this is why we are always on his thoughts. As verses 1 to 6 describe. Because he himself made us. Verse 14, he goes on, he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Fearfully and wonderfully made. I just read uh, an anecdote recently. It was an interview. And in the interview, one of the, the, the guy who was being interviewed, he had had a massive back spine trauma where five vertebrae were broken. And the doctors were baffled. They said, you should be dead. There was already some providential stuff going on there. Well, he goes and he gets the surgery and he's wearing the the braces and stuff. And he asked the doctor one day, he says, how does it work? How does it work? And the doctor says, well, you know, we we line everything up and we we position it and then we put the hard brace on. And then the, the ends of the bones, they begin to get sticky and they begin to fuse together and they begin to grow and then they eventually get hard and we can kind of go to a soft brace and then we take that off and then... And then, and then you're healed. And, you're, and he said, no, no, no. I understand the process from your end. How does it work? How do bones heal? Doctor said, we don't know. What? We don't know. The more we discover about human beings, the more we learn about the wisdom and care with which God made us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, science is a wonderful thing. Science, right? And I'm saying this especially as an aside kind of for our younger people. Science is not against biblical Christianity. Secular humanism is, but secular humanism is a philosophy. It's a a religious stance and a religious commitment. But science is not against biblical Christianity. In fact, the more science learns the more improbable a godless world seems. Right? Do you know how many, there's like a dozen uh, things in the universe that have to be just so in order for there to be life on this planet? Uh, Each one of which is a statistical impossibility. Layered upon themselves, it can't be. And that's just life, let alone you fantastic bunch, right? So, like, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Science can end up functioning and is functioning right now as a kind of a babble, right? Like a Tower of Babel kind of thing. Like, you can either be a Christian or you can believe science. But that's not what science is supposed to be. Science was intended to be this this childlike wonder coupled with a, a, a mature discipline, And this is the way that Adam and Eve were supposed to be interacting with the world as scientists in this way, discovering all the wonderful works of God. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And then he says, wonderful are your works. What's he talking about? He says, I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O Lord. What are those works? What are the wonderful works of God? Us. Ready? Everybody, right? It's you. You're the wonderful work that God has done here, formed and knitted by God himself. You, you, your life 
is a wonderful work of God. What do we call wonderful works of God when they happen in this world? What do we call them? These these wonderful acts of God that God sends into the world in order to do good for many people and to bring glory to Him. What do we call them? Miracles. Miracles. (laughs) Just pledge on this number right here. (laughs) You miracle person. I feel like we're in weird territory. But this is what the psalm is saying. Right? You are... You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and and wonderful are your works. He goes on and he says, my soul knows it very well. My soul knows it very well, which I think is really interesting. He doesn't just say like, and I love it. He says, my soul knows it, as if there's a kind of a tension between my thoughts and myself, which we kind of see in some other places in Scripture. Psalm 42, uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? So there's sort of like, who is the psalmist speaking to but himself? Romans 1, we, we knew all these things about God, but we suppressed that truth. We put it somewhere in ourselves where we wouldn't have to notice it. But what the psalmist says here is that my soul knows that I am a wonderful work of a wonderful God. My soul knows that fact very well. So while we may not like the implications of the fact that we were formed by a God who made all things, we love living in his world. We, right, we love living. We love being alive in this world. All the things that, that you love to do, they're all things to do, and you love them. Right? We love this life and living in this world. We love that all the stuff in our life works. Right? Gardening, cooking, you like these things? You like cooking? You like eating? Any fans of eating out here, right? That's a, we like eating. We like running. We like swimming. What are the things that you love to do? You love them and the things you do, right? And, and why? Because God made you and he made you wonderfully. And he put you in a wonderful world to enjoy it. We love, being humans is fantastic, Anybody want to be a, a lower life form, right? Being humans is fantastic, and we love it. I, I once heard a comedian moaning about how everything's amazing and nobody's happy. He's whining about technology and stuff. I think the psalmist would agree with that. He'd say, he'd say everyone is amazing, everyone is wonderful, but nobody's worshiping. Pay attention, the psalmist is saying. Pay attention to what you know. Your life is wonderful. And we should be praising God as a consequence of it. All the stuff that you get to do, all the stuff you get to enjoy is wonderful. Verse 15, there's a shift. Verses 13 and 14 is all about what God is doing himself. Verse 15 and into 16, it becomes more about God uh, observing, his oversight. So my frame was not hidden. In verse 16, your eyes saw. The operation of God, the formation of life is a miracle, but it is largely hidden from our sight. We don't know what's going on, but God sees it every step of it. He watches over every part of it for every single one of us, right? God is with us every step of the way. God is with us every step of the way. In fact, in verse 16, look at this. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. God, what does that mean? God sees us in the womb. God sees us in our pre-human shaped selves. 
You know the little picture of like you look like a shrimp, right? God saw that. God was there at the moment of conception and He was already attentive to you. God was already in communion with you and attentive to you at that moment. Friends, you were never a fetus to God. You were never a bit of tissue. You were always you to Him from that first moment. God knew us from the beginning. He is with us every step of the way. And God is with all babies in this way. All babies, born and unborn. And think about how radical this verse was in the culture of that time. How radical it is in a culture today. Right? The, the world has not been a, a, a good place for babies to be. Right, so in the story of Israel, in the history of Israel, God brings them out of Egypt. What's happening to them in Egypt? There's an official policy that every baby boy needs to be killed. And they're going from Egypt, where that is the official policy, to the land of Canaan, which is notorious for offering their children to their gods as living as sacrifices. Fast forward to the beginning of the Roman Empire, the New Testament, where the Roman Empire is notorious for infanticide, where if a child was born and it was a management problem or there was something about it you didn't like or something that just, didn't see, it just was a bad day for you, they would just leave their kids out on certain areas of the town. This was just a common practice throughout the Roman Empire. And of course, you fast forward to today, the most evolved society in human history, and we're still, we've killed 60 million babies since 1973, which sounds like a, a lot and is a terrible lot of babies, but every year the world kills 60 million babies. Every year. This has always been something, for whatever reason, that societies have either tolerated or encouraged. And into that, this is written. God's saying, I formed you. I knitted you together. In your unformed substance, I was attentive to you and alert to you. And so when, when God brings the people of Israel into the promised land, he says, oh, goodness, please do not. Do not join in the ways that they worship their gods by sacrificing their children. He says, it's an abomination and I hate it. And it's an abomination and he hates it because this is why. Because he formed and knit the babies together. But this passage isn't about abortion. It's not about babies. It's about you. That this is the heart that God has for you. He loves you in that way. The same way you're feeling all those feelings right now for all those babies is how he feels for you. You are his. There's another shift here in the next line of verse 15. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. I'm sorry, verse 16. Your, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And now there's another shift, kind of a shift in metaphor where it says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God wrote a book. You know what the book's about? It's about you. God wrote a book. In your book were written, every one of them, 
the days that were formed for you when as yet there were none of them. God wrote a book and it's all about you. And he says, the days that were formed for me, just as God formed our bodies, he formed our stories. He formed our lives. We live in a story written by the master who weaves our best days. Is this the right one? Oh, sure. That's a little jump in the gun here. God knit together our bodies and he writes our stories. That's what this is saying. God knits together our bodies and he writes our stories. And he did this when as yet there was none of them. Right? Every single one of them were written when as yet there was none of them. God is, your life is a story written by a master storyteller. Does it feel that way? It doesn't always feel that way, does it? Now you can look at this verse and say, well, this, this is all about God's sovereignty. Like God has planned out our days before they even existed. And certainly it assumes God's sovereignty, but this is, I think, more about the psalmist experience of what we would call God's serendipity. Serendipity. You know this word? It's like luck. It's the uh, personal, personalized statistical improbabilities that we encounter. So earlier it was all about the statistical improbabilities of, of our creation. Now it is the statistical improbabilities of your life. The way that, because our story is written by a master storyteller, our Great days are woven together from our bad days. Have you had that experience where you say, this is a, I'm in a great place here. But I never would have got here if I hadn't gone through these other things that I didn't like. How did I get here? Through there. Why? Because God is at work in our lives. There's actually people, people study everything. There's actually people who study luck, the science of luck, are people actually luckier than other people? You know what they found? No. <laughs> but they, what they found is that it's a matter of perception, that some people think they're luckier and they experience more luck. The experience of luck, then, is simply an observation. It's simply being attentive to your life. And what the psalmist is saying here is, The experience of luck, the experience of God's presence in my life is just the observation that God is involved in it. And it's not just the good things in my life that are going to work for good. I want every day to be good. I want everything to be good, right? Because I want tomorrow to be good. But we know it doesn't have to be. It's not just the good things that produce good, but all things that are going to be worked together for good. The the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you have watched it yet this year? We're coming up on that season though, right? You know, It's a Wonderful Life is actually, I think, a pretty important myth for our culture. Right? And then when it was coming out, especially, right, you've got these industrial, impersonal forces. The society is becoming less and less friendly. There's more and more injustice and more powerlessness in relation to the injustices. And so it's very easy for all of us to feel like George... Right? That's his name. Right? It's very easy for all of us to feel like that and say, what difference is my life? What difference is my life? And of course, they answer it in some sort of treacly, saccharine, uh, you know, I'll just, you know, get out there. You're just great being you and do some more good works or something like that. But Psalm 139 is dealing with that same question. What difference are you? What difference is your life? What it says is, hey, God wrote it. 
God wrote the story of your life. God wrote your part in this story. He wrote your life. He wrote it into his story. And that means what? That means it matters. That means you matter. So pay attention. So pay attention to your life. Walk with God and see more of God in your life. God is with us every step of the way. And so our passage concludes in verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. It ends with really what is a, a doxology about God's thoughts. What are God's thoughts here? They're God's thoughts about me. God's thoughts about you. How precious to me are your thoughts about me, O God. He says, how vast is the sum of them? How often do you think God thinks about you? Right, again, this is is so tied into our view of who God is. Does God only notice you when you pray? Does he only see you when you're at church? You know, I have a very limited attention span, right? You have a very limited attention span. And so you'll get a text from somebody and you go, oh! You'll get a letter from somebody and be like, I remember them. Right? We, we think of other people infrequently, even people who are dear to us, not that often. The thoughts of God for you are vast. They're vast, precious, and vast. In fact, he says in verse 18, he says, They are more than the sand. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Which, what, what does that expression mean, more than the sand? It just means innumerable, right? You, you can't count them. There's so many of them. But in the context of Israel, in the context of a reflection on the covenant love of God with his people, the expression more than the sand is a little bit more weighted. Because twice to Abraham, when God is making a covenant with him, God says, your descendants are going to be more than the sand. My promise to you is going to result in an innumerable amount of people. And now, to this man, he says, the thoughts of God for each one of us are more than the sand. I think what he's saying is that the number of God's thoughts about each of us is equal to the number of all of us. So think about that for a second. The number of God's thoughts about each of us is equal to the number about all of us. In other words, God cares as much about you as he cares about all of us. I don't really understand this. Right? We cannot escape uh, ethical quantity decisions. How many people should die? Well, fewer, Right? We, we, just, we kind of run, how many people are going to be helped by this? Well, we should do more. God doesn't have to think that way. He cares as much about each one of us as he cares about all of us. Each one of us matters to him as much as all of us. I don't get it. But this is the love of God for us. You, God doesn't look at you with the same sort of ethical consideration that we look at each other. You know, when the other elders get together and talk, there's some decisions where we're like, whoa, who's, who's going to be affected? How many? Well, we consider that kind of thing. 
God doesn't consider it. He's devoted to doing good to all of us, to knowing us, to being attentive to each of us, because we are his. I love this last line in, in verse 18, the last, the last phrase in our passage this morning. So he says, if I would count them, they're more than the sand. Now, what do, what's going to happen to you if you try to count the sand? At some point, you're going to fall asleep, right? <laughs> you're falling asleep. Some of you, you're not even counting the sand, and you're falling asleep right now. So, I mean, you're kind of really pathetic. No, I'm just kidding. I love you. Um, he says, and then the last line, right? I awake. It's like he fell asleep counting the thoughts of God about him. He says, I awake, and I'm still with you. That's a different way to phrase it, isn't it? What does that mean? I think we'll spend a lot of our life wondering what that means. He says, I awake, and I'm still with you. He falls asleep considering the vast sum of the love of God, only to wake up and discover that the story of me and God is still going on. He's looking back, considering all the love that God has poured out on him, and he, he falls asleep, he wakes up, and God's still with him, still doing great things. There's still more of God's wonderful works happening today, still more of his story being written in my life, still more of his innumerable vast sum of thoughts and attention given to me today, still more being added to this vast library of the thoughts of God for us. God is with us every step of the way. Why are we so deeply loved? Why are we so deeply and thoroughly loved by God? And the answer of these verses is because, because, verse 13, because we are totally and completely his. We are totally and completely his. We have been formed by him, our bodies, ourselves, and our lives. We are his. God loves us so, so much. We are so, so much his. He loves us deeper than we can see, further back than we can remember, and further out than we can imagine. Maybe that's why Paul says, let's together reflect and get to know the love of Christ, what is the height and length and depth and breadth. Because it just goes in all directions. In an a vast sum. So what should we do with all this this morning? Let me encourage you with what the psalmist says here at the end in verse 18, if I would count them. If I would count them. Count them. Count them. Itemize the ways that God loves you. Your soul knows it. You love being alive in his life that he's given you. Your soul knows it. Let your mind and your heart know it as well. And I think that something happens. I think that there's a subtle shift here. So he says, my soul knows this really well. I think there's a shift in the psalmist as he considers so closely the love of God, something awakens in him. So back in verse 5, he says that the Lord is with me. And he says, you hem me in behind me before you, lay your hand upon me. You're with me every step of the way. Verse 8, he says the same thing. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, you are there. But there's a shift here, isn't there? Up to this point, he's been reflecting how God is with him. Now what does he say? I wake up and I'm with you. Up till now, it's been you're with me. Now it's I'm with you. 
I think knowing how with us God is, he comes to realize that that means that I'm with God. These truths about God are really great, but it's when those truths about God are brought into my life and become truths about me that they become healing. That they, they, right? He, he says, my soul knows these wonderful things, but I don't get it yet. He wants to align his soul and his mind and his life. And it's by meditating on the love of God for him that these things come into alignment. So the truths about God become truths about me. He's healed, he's empowered, he's energized. Here's what I mean, right? So we're all facing things in our life that we think we're facing by ourselves. That's how, we, that's how we interact with them. We feel like I'm facing this thing by myself. And what the psalmist would say, what the Bible would say is you're not. God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. So don't face it by yourself. You don't need to face it by yourself. So don't face it by yourself. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Hang on a second. I'm with God. So there, on the one hand, there's comfort. I'm not alone here. On the other hand, there's energy. God's, I'm with God. God's with me. I'm with God. So don't face your life like you're alone. God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. He's with you every step of the way. He knows the thoughts you have from afar, the words on your tongue before you say them. If you go down to Sheol, he's there. If you go to the furthest parts of the world, he's there. If darkness is encroaching on you and covering you, he's with you there. He formed you. He made you. He wrote your story. The days that, all the days you're going to live when as yet there was none of them. He's with you every step of the way. So wake up and be with him. Live your life with him. So wake up, you wonderful things, you. And live every one of the days that God has formed by hand for you. Live with him. Live your wonderful life with this one who makes all these things wonderful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we encounter so many and such extraordinary truths here that it is a little bit overwhelming. It's a vast sum of your thoughts about us, and it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. And so, Lord, I trust that you will take at least one or two of these truths and help them to land on each one of us in a fresh way. That we would come to know, come to believe, come to appreciate the love that you have for us in a deeper way. Lord, we're, we're facing things and we feel like we're facing these things alone. We feel like it's just up to us. And it's so good to hear that you are with us in all these things. That, that can be thin comfort sometimes. So help us to really reflect on this like the psalmist is and to really receive this good news, to count all the ways that your love is involved in our lives 
and to realize when we're done considering your love that we are with you. We are with you. We, don't, we really don't have to be alone as we are with you. Lord, I pray that every single one of us would feel that and be able to say that as a result of this word dwelling in us. So please watch over us now. Watch over this word. In Jesus' name, amen.